0: You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to be in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 this morning. I'm going to be looking at Hebrews, well, 9 and 10, but focusing on 24 and 25. If you remember back to the first few months of COVID, and when the whole world got turned upside down to some degree in those days, one of the one of the things that started happening as as people stopped uh, meeting and gathering was uh, the question. Well, people started asking, "Well, what what of what of our meetings are necessary? I mean, of all the times we get together, uh, are all these are all these meetings we do necessary? This, I know this particular took." or particularly took place in the workplace, you know, that's known for meetings, and there's books out there called, like, you know, Death by Meeting and things like that. Are all these meetings necessary? Uh, And during that time, you know, as many churches shifted to online services, at least the unintended effect of that was... Uh, It's hard to not ask, is going to church necessary? Is it necessary to gather together? And based on uh, what people figured out was based on their theology, that whether they knew they had it or not, uh, that affected how they answered that, that question. Is the gathering of God's people necessary? Or is this something that's elective? Uh, our, our text this morning answers that question very clearly. Before I read verses 24 and 25, I wanna, I'm going to read Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 12, and then I'm going to read, in chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 19 and read through verse 25. So be, Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 1. in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, thus have, or thus have been, or these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, Father, we know that you have more for us than we understand or that we realize, but we know we need more and we want more, so would you grant us just a little bit more of an understanding and a vision for the good you have for us as we gather together in Jesus' name, we pray in his name. amen. so as we read through the book of Hebrews there's a there's a transition here in chapter 10 uh, this, this this group of, of Christians who the author is encouraging to persevere in faith he has he has carefully explored how uh, there is no one and nothing greater than Jesus in chapters 1 through 10. Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron in the Old Testament high priesthood. He's provided a greater sacrifice. He's inaugurated a new covenant. And now, halfway through chapter 10, he shifts to what a proper response to all of this looks like. He shifts his focus from explanation and exposition to implication and application. And in September, we looked at the first two of these three imperatives, these three exhortations we see here in verses 22 through 25 of chapter 10. Answering at least one answer, one of the places we could look to in Scripture to answer what should the Christian life look like? What does it look like to persevere in faith? In the midst of suffering, in the midst of the ups and downs of life in a fallen world, even in the midst of persecution. Three exhortations that are easy to see in the text. Verse 22, draw near to God. Verse 23, hold fast the confession of your faith. Verses 24 and 25, encourage one another. Draw near, hold fast, and encourage. I think it's worth lingering on this third exhortation for for two reasons. One, just because I think it's often neglected today. But second, I think it's often misunderstood today, too. As we focus on verses 24 and 25. Far too many of us neglect and undervalue and misunderstand the glory of God's gathered people. So this morning, as we look at verses 24 and 25, we're going to Look at the gathering mindset, and then the gathering habit, and third, the gathering location. The flow of this might kind of feel like zooming in and then kind of zooming out on the context of these, of these verses. The author of Hebrews, he wants us to persevere in our faith. He wants us to persevere. He, he writes at the beginning of chapter 6 that he wants us to go from, from the elementary doctrine of Christ to go on to maturity. And greater maturity will include a greater esteem for God's gathered people. So let's consider first the gathering mindset. In verse 24, the author urges us here, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So this completes three different orientations that we see in these three Exhortations. The first imperative is that is this. The first imperative is oriented toward God. We draw near to God. The second imperative is oriented towards ourselves in relationship to God. We we hold fast our confession. and We do so because God is faithful. And third, the the third imperative. This one is oriented towards others. This one introduces a horizontal dimension. So Christianity reunites human beings with God vertically, creature with creator, but Christianity also has implications horizontally, right? Creature with creature, man and woman, brother and brother, sister and sister, Jew and Gentile. We live out our Christianity in a community. God has built into the Christian life an integral connection to other people. Notice in verses 22 and 23, Uh, you still have the horizontal dimension at work because it says, let us draw near with full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And then third, let us consider how. So the, the author of Hebrews reminds us here that the Christian faith, as I heard someone put it one time, the Christian faith, it is personal, but it's not private. It's personal, but it's not private. The main verb in verse 24 is is consider. Let us consider. So this starts with considering. It starts with contemplating. You have to think about this. You have to think about others. You have to, to, to think about yourself in relation to others. What can I do to stir up love and good works in others? As if it apparently doesn't happen just automatically. If it, as if it doesn't just happen by, uh, just, just by default. We don't just pass data from uh, one to another. He's telling, he's telling us to think about this. Consider how to provoke this in other people. The, this word translated stir up, it could also be translated provoke. We usually think of provoking as, as a negative thing. Uh, brothers and sisters are experts at provoking one another. Right? If you have siblings, you ha- you don't even have to say a word. You maybe have to like barely move your face, and your brother or your sister can erupt in anger. I know this from personal experience, and then I have a front row seat of watching it happen. Right? Both of you. This, but but uh, provoking one another it doesn't have to be negative it can also be positive this is but this is why we have to consider we have to consider what our words provoke in others we have to consider what our actions provoke in others. <clears throat> the uh, famous preacher from the fourth century John Chrysostom, he points out that this this love that we're to provoke in others this isn't just love toward God we don't just love provoke each other to love. Towards God, it, it doesn't say it's 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 ambiguous here. So we we ought to take it also to mean we also provoke each other to love one another. So we provoke one another to love one another. But that then that begs the question: is is that how you're provocative? When you're provocative, is this what you provoke others for? How do people respond to us? Do we provoke one another to love? And good works Is that what you stir up in others, in the body of Christ? If we're going to do that, it requires a particular mindset. Uh, the gathering mindset is that we're not just here for ourselves. We're not just here for our own personal relationship with Jesus. We are here for that, of course, but that's not the only thing we're here for. The gathering mindset goes outside of ourselves. We're here for each other because our our faith is, while it's personal, it's not private. And the author clarifies this in in both a negative and a positive way in verse, verse 25. Negatively, not neglecting to meet together. Positively, encouraging one another. So this leads us secondly to the gathering habit. The gathering habit. You cannot stir one another up to love and good works. If you are not in the habit of spending time with people, members of the body of Christ, and this was this this was apparently just as much of an issue then as it was as it was today. He says in verse twenty-five, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Thomas says this. He's he's. Uh, he has an idea, or they would have an idea, who, who these would be, who have developed this habit of, of not meeting with the brothers and sisters. Apparently they're believers connected to this congregation who neglected meeting with them. Their habit, the routine they had cultivated, was to neglect the meeting, which, which require, requires that we, we reflect, what are my habits? What habits have I cultivated? Human beings are creatures of habit. Right? Most of us are sitting in probably about the same place this morning as you do other times you come here. Habits are, are not bad, they're good. Help us, habits help us be efficient. And so even some habits of neglect are good. It's, it's good to neglect, probably, it's probably good to neglect the snooze button on your alarm clock. Right? Nothing wrong with neglecting that that button probably. I mean it's not like it's evil to hit it sometimes. It's right, it's it's a good if you're neglecting casinos, that's that's probably a good habit to neglect. Right? But the habit of neglecting the Christian assembly that's different. Far too many Christians undervalue and underrealize the horizontal aspects of, of the Christian life. The necessity of, of regular Christian fellowship and the centrality of the weekly Christian assembly. The, the necessity of regular Christian fellowship and the centrality of the weekly Christian assembly. We'll come back to the weekly Christian assembly. But, but, but Christian Fellowship, regular Christian fellowship, is something that the New Testament assumes as a priority for for Christians. Christians are the people who prioritize one another. Uh, you, you'll never be best friends with every member of a congregation of Christians, but there should be people in the body of Christ who know you and who you know. If your only connection to other believers is just coming here on uh, a Sunday morning, and then you go about the rest of your life it's very unlikely that other believers know you and that you know other believers. Far too many churches actually just reinforce this today. far too many churches, maybe if sometimes I think with good intentions uh, they 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 put on a production on. Sunday mornings, they reinforce this idea that your Christian faith is just your own individual thing, right? Pastors are are public personalities who uh, have have brands connected to their to their names, and they have social media uh, profiles to keep updated for people to follow. And then church staff and and uh, uh, pastors, they're 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 event planners, they're they're production people. People show up for, like, an event is, is, how, is how church feels. It's like, it's like coming to a, to a movie or a concert or a sporting event. This has even affected how churches are designed when they're, when they're built these days. They're built more like uh, movie theaters and concert venues and sporting events are, are, are designed. So people come, and, and we know what to do in these types of settings. We come, we, we take it all in. We are uh, amused. Uh, We like how this makes us feel. We like how this makes us think. We maybe even like, like how it challenges us personally. But it's all individual. It's all compartmentalized. It's all neat and clean. But it's not New Testament Christianity. It's not how the New Testament describes Christianity. Every Christian who reads Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 should ask, does anyone know me? Do I know anyone? Does anyone know how my soul is doing? Or is that something I keep to myself? That's all on my own. The word encourage here in verse verse 25 is the same, same word we see in Hebrews 3, 13, where the author is making a similar point back in chapter 3. He writes in, Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And the solution in verse 13, but exhort one another. That's the same word, exhort. Encourage is a legitimate translation, but exhort, but encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we're to encourage and exhort one another. And the question is, is that part of your Christian experience? Is it integral part of your Christian experience? Or is it something that's rare in your Christian experience? Are you on the sending end of encouragement and provoking to love and good works? Are you on the receiving end of encouragement to love and good works? A lot of times these excuse "Well, I, I would, but it no you know no one wants to. No one's interested in that, or I've tried and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't go well. I mean, let's be honest. Isolation is is easy. This this doesn't always go very well, and I, and isolation's easier. Fellowship takes effort. Fellowship takes patience. Fellowship takes long suffering." Some of the exhortations people give are not so helpful. Some of the encouragement people give is not so encouraging. Sometimes isolation is is in response to pain. People hurt us in the church. It can be hard to trust people when you've been hurt. The natural response to pain is to develop new habits to avoid that pain. But remember what's motivating these instructions in verses 22, or sorry, back to verse 19. What, what's motivating all these instructions in verses 22 to 25 is, is what he summarizes and bases all this on in verses 19 through 21. Christ has entered the holy places. When we're tempted to isolate, remember, Christ has entered the holy places. Christ has opened a new and living way for us. Christ suffered tremendous inconvenience to do this for us. Christ suffered tremendous pain in order to do this for us. And we have, in light of His work, His death, resurrection, and ascension, we have a great high priest actively interceding for us. And it's on this basis that we should both draw near to God, but not just to God, we should draw near to one another. Notice the urgency here at the end of verse 25. We're to encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is the day? The day is the end. The day is the the culmination of all things. Uh, We know that the heavenly high priest will one day return to save those who, Hebrews 9.28, who are eagerly waiting for him. And so as time goes on, at least in the mind of the author of Hebrews, as time goes on, there is not less urgency for Christian fellowship, there's actually more urgency for Christian fellowship. As you see the day drawing near, that should make us lean in even more. So the gathering mindset, it's, it's collectivistic. It's, it's, it's not individual. It is, it is collective. It's It's corporate. We bless God, and God blesses us. We encourage each other, and we are encouraged by one another. That's the gathering mindset, and the gathering habit is meeting with the saints regularly. It's prioritizing the Christian saints and the Christian assembly. But this leads us third and finally to the gathering location. The location. Where should the church be meeting? Where should we be meeting? Is this talking about church on Sunday mornings, like where we are right now? Or is this talking about what we do all throughout the week? Is this talking about smaller groups and relationships and Bible studies throughout the week? I mean, Hebrews 13, it's it says we should exhort one another every day, right? But as we look at this passage, I, I think the application is, is, is both. It, it fits into both, but But the stress here is on the Sunday morning gathering. And I think that's that's important to see. I want you to to see this. I think that helps us. This helps us appreciate the glory of God's gathered people, out of which flow our relationships and our connections and the content of our encouragement toward one another. God's people have not always had God's Word uh, in front of them. God's people have not always been able to read God's Word, they've not always had access to God's Word. The thing that they have had, though, is the assembly out of which flow our ministry to one another. What is the context of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25? I mean, there's lots of things that are, but but the context of these verses is worship. And it's actually corporate worship. It's what we're doing here right now. Hebrews 10 is not disconnected from Hebrews 9. Go back to Hebrews 9. Look at verse 1 of Hebrews, 1, Hebrews 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So Hebrews 9 is dealing with how old covenant believers engaged in worship, right? And he goes on there in the next eight verses to talk about the tabernacle and the temple, which was the center of old covenant worship. He goes on with the holy place and the most holy place, right? But then in verse 9, look what he writes in verse 9 of Hebrews 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We're still talking about worship. We're still talking about the people who come together to Worship, But the problem in the Old Covenant was that those who worshipped continued to have burdened consciences. They continued to have burdened consciences because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10.4. But because of Christ's sacrifice, we see in Hebrews 9.14, jump to verse 14, we see how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to, it says, to serve the living God? The word there, serve, is the same root for the word worship and worshiper in verses 1 and 4 of Hebrews 9. So a legitimate reading of Hebrews nine fourteen is is that, that the blood of Christ would purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. To serve God is to worship God. Think of what 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 God tells Moses to share with with Pharaoh back in uh, back in Exodus, right? In Exodus nine one, He tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go that they may serve me. And it's the same concept again. It's the same con- that they may. God is telling Pharaoh to let his people go to go out into the wilderness that they may serve me, that they may worship me. To serve God is to worship God. To worship God is to serve God. And so we have to recognize in this, in the Old Covenant context, whenever we're talking about offerings and sacrifices, whenever we're talking about priests, whenever we're talking about the temple and the tabernacle and the holy places, we're talking about worship. That's what we're talking about. And so in the Old Testament, worship takes place in that, in that setting. There, there, we can distinguish between both formal and informal kinds of worship. There's always been a category for informal worship, and what I mean by informal worship is just the reality that all of life is worship. That has always been true. God created us as image bearers to serve Him, to reflect His image, right? He created us as image bearers to serve and worship Him, but our great problem, our great problem that all human beings have had going all the way back to Genesis 3 is that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. right? Our problem is a worship problem. So to be human is to be a worshiper. You will worship something, you will worship someone, and we are fallen worshipers. And so both the Old Testament and the New Testament have categories for for informal worship, the idea that all of life is worship. But worship has also always had a formal aspect to it. There have been particular times set aside for focused worship of God. It comes with formal structures, it comes with particular days, it comes with particular roles, particular rituals and, and patterns. And in the Old Testament, worships outlined in the law, right? Again, primarily revolving around the tabernacle. Uh, this is what the author of Hebrews points out in chapter nine. This is what he's, this is what he's talking about in chapter nine. In Old Testament worship, God's people drew near to him, right And in that case he was he was present with them in the temple. He's in the Holy of Holies. They draw near to him now, now not into the holy of holies, right because that's just one person once once a year, not without blood right? but they'd come close. they'd draw near to God. they would acknowledge together his greatness and his goodness. We know at least by David's day, David's day there was a musical component to this. We read about in Chronicles that David is appointing musicians and, and, and singers who are a part of this. Now maybe there were some all from the beginning. Uh, we, don't, we don't know for sure. We, we know God's people have always sang. You think of God's people singing uh, uh, in the Exodus 17 after he, he rescues them from, from Egypt. But there isn't necessarily always, singing isn't just worship. A lot of times people say worship, we assume worship is, is the singing of God's people. That isn't, that isn't worship. You have all kinds of information about worship without any talk of singing in, in places in, in the New Testament. That doesn't mean worship is not singing is not worship, it, it is. But uh, we, we need to change our vocabulary. Uh, we, aren't, we didn't conclude worship and now we're doing something else right now. This is all worship. Sorry, getting off track. So in Old Testament, they would they would gather together, they would draw near to God. They would acknowledge together his greatness and his goodness. They would acknowledge their sin, right? And then they were reminded that God forgives their sin, right? That's they had they brought sacrifices. There would be sacrifice. God would forgive their sin. That's what that was the role of the priests, right? But we know that all of this was ultimately inadequate for fallen human beings. It was inadequate. And the author of Hebrews has described this at length. It did not completely relieve the conscience of the worshiper. But now, Christ has appeared as a new high priest. There's a new worship program that started with Christ. We have a new high priest. He has offered a new sacrifice. He has brought new blood. And Christ is now the mediator of a new covenant relationship with God so that further sacrifice is not needed. Look at Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That is what, that's describing the new covenant that we are now under. But then look at verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There is no longer sacrifice Connected. At least there's no longer blood connected with worship. There's, blood has no place. None of us brought blood this morning. And you shouldn't have. And that's because of where worship takes place now. That's because of the gathering location for us this morning. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the gathering location is heaven. It's heaven. Where is our high priest right now? He's in heaven. Hebrews 4, he's he's the high priest who's passed through the heavens. Hebrews 7, he's exalted above the heavens. Back in chapter 9, he's the one who has entered heaven itself. Entered into the holy places. So then now, look at verse 19, chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we worship God in the holy places. We worship Him in heaven. The New Testament gathering location is heaven. We come together here on Sundays in a sense to go to heaven together. Just to reemphasize this point, just jump ahead to Hebrews 12, verse 22, where he says, we have not come to Mount Sinai, right? Mount Sinai, where God brought his people after he rescued from Egypt, and what does he give them at Mount Sinai? He gives them the law, and he gives them instructions for the tabernacle, right? But the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, 22, he says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to god the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to jesus the mediator of a new covenant and so you ask well is that is that literal or is that figurative that's that's well, that's a bad question to ask because it's 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 neither i mean it's I mean, it's not literal, right? Because obviously in a real sense, we're still waiting. I mean, there's a sense when this is going to be literally much more true experientially. Uh, at least in terms of our, our five five senses when when the new heavens and the new earth is is here. There's a sense in which we are not in Zion yet. So literally, no, no. But But it's not just figurative because there is some real sense in which gathered together as the people that Christ bought with His real blood. His blood was not figurative. That is real blood that was shed for us. And as those who gather to a high priest who really intercedes for us, this is not a hypothetical. This is not just sort of a spiritual intercession. This is a human being who is fully God and fully man, but a human being who stands and intercedes for us. We really do come to Him. We have to recognize God has been gathering his people for worship for a long, long, long time. And while it's true that we, we are individually his sheep and we have individual relationship with them. Our names are on his written on his hands, so to speak. Just pointing to that that, that individual connection we have. At any moment, at all moments. But God has always been gathering a collective people. He's always been gathering his people together. He gathers his people on Mount Sinai. He's gathering his, his people in the Old Testament. We see even at the end of the scriptures, in Revelation 21, when, when the Apostle John sees the new heavens and the new earth come down, he writes, And I heard with a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people and God himself will be with them as their God they're together we will be together with God that's where all these gatherings ultimately culminate this this gathering along with the countless others that are taking place this morning all over the world that's where all these gatherings culminate but right now as, as we wait as we persevere as we suffer with Christ as as, as Christ gathers His church, as the gospel goes to all nations, Christ, He graciously sends us His Spirit. He fills us with His Spirit and He calls us to heaven to worship our triune God together until one day heaven comes down. God has always gathered His people. He will always gather His people. The author of Hebrews has elaborated in chapters 9 and 10, that worship has changed in some significant ways. There's a new covenant, there's a new high priest, there's no longer any sacrifice, there's no longer any blood, but the fundamental aspects of worship have not changed. We still, we still gather, God still gathers His people to meet with Him, to be shaped by Him and to be renewed by Him. Whatever you worship shapes you. We are worshiping creatures. You cannot not worship. It's just what it fundamentally means to be a human being. That's what you've created a, to, you're, what you've created a being. And so what you will worship something and then what you worship actually shapes you because you're created to reflect back this God who is, has made you. So what you worship shapes you. And when we gather together, we are shaped by God. That's why it's important Question to ask for our for our Sunday morning gatherings: Are our Sunday morning gatherings are they informed more by Scripture or are they informed more by our culture? Which gets into a whole another very very important discussion where we're not going to take this morning, but but we should ask: Are are we is what we're doing is when we're coming to meet with God and be shaped by God? Are we even approaching this in a way that He has prescribed for us, that He has clearly outlined for us? Or are we doing it our own, our own way? It matters because we're, we're, we're going to be shaped by something. We're going to reflect something, and we're made to reflect the God who made us. So He gathers us, and we are shaped by Him as, as we gather. And we're also renewed as we gather. God's people, they gathered in the Old Testament, to serve him and worship him, and as they did, they brought a sacrifice. We don't bring a sacrifice. So, what do we have? Well, we are renewed. Right? We don't, we're not renewed as we look at this blood that's spilt for us and assured that our, our sins are forgiven because this animal's blood has been shed and not ours. <clears throat> How does this work for us? We're renewed as we remember and as we confess together Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Because we recognize we do this not because God needs reminders. We're not there just, hey, don't forget. Don't forget us down here, God. That, that is not the purpose, this, the purpose of, of this. We're here because we're the ones who need to hear this again and again and again. We're the ones who are prone to wander. We need to hear our neighbor sing it to us. We need to hear a preacher preach it to us. We need to see it and taste it in the ordinances. We need to lift our voices together and our prayers together. God knows we need it. That's why He continues to gather us together. The question for you is, do you know you need it? From this, we're, we're motivated to provoke and to encourage one another, because we don't just meet with God; we're also meeting with with one another. So, do you see how the whole context here points to corporate worship? We have priests. We have uh, we we have worship taking taking place. This is all worship language in chapters nine and ten. As we draw near to God, as we hold fast the confession of our hope, as we stir up one another, and the gathering place is is heaven. Is 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we come down from heaven together, so to speak. We go out as we come as we come down from Mount zion and go about our week we continue to stir up one another we continue to encourage one another but do you see the problem if we don't meet do you see the problem if we if we if we try to create a category for online church as great as the resources are online we can't go to heaven together online this isn't something you can download See the problem if we don't gather together. I'm not saying it's always a, it's always a sin to, or it's a sin when we cancel church. We live in South Dakota. There's snow and there's ice, right? And then and there's other things that that get in the way too. We have sickness. We have physical debilitations that prevent us from from being with with God's people. We we trust God's providence in these. Circumstances. And we try to act with, with biblically informed wisdom. We also just we, we recognize it's in, in incredibly important to out, point out, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So attending church does not save you. Attending church does not make God, you cannot come here anymore to make God love you. Your perfect church attendance, record, does not change what God thinks of you. You could never build up enough righteousness by gathering with the saints to compare with the the righteousness God has provided for us in, in Christ. But do you see the problem with neglecting God's gathered people? Of making a habit of neglecting God's people? I'm not here to condemn Anybody for not gathering with the saints? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you're not here, you are not hearing me say that. And you're not hearing others sing that. And we're not at least trying to encourage one another in that. God has good for us. And as we see the day drawing near we, we need to remember we, we are made for worship but we're fallen worshipers the father is seeking worshipers the kids for this Wednesday are memorizing John 4:23 right I think it's 423 Thanks the father is seeking worshipers. The Son came to redeem worshipers. The Spirit is giving life to fallen worshipers. We are fallen worshipers who have worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. But if you're in Christ, you're a redeemed worshiper. And Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And one of the ways that we eagerly wait, one of the most important ways we eagerly wait is we gather. God gathers us. I want to end where we began this morning in Exodus fifteen thirteen. God has led us in His steadfast love, the people whom He has redeemed. He's redeemed us in Christ. He has guided us by his strength. And he has guided us by his strength to his holy abode. What it says. His abode, the place where he dwells. The glory of God's gathered people is is Christ. The one who gathers us to himself. Let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some but let's encourage one another. Let's provoke one another to love and good works.